0: Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now, here's your host, Nicole Giantonio.
1: Hello listeners, it's Nicole G. Antonio, the founder of Left Foot. And I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS Growth Practice Solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com/gps for details. Hello listeners and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest oversees a firm with more than 300 legal staff across 16 offices and in five countries. A corporate transactions lawyer and a senior member of the public finance group, he's put his law, economics, and public policy education to good use. Headquartered in Detroit, Michigan, Miller Canfield's CEO, Mike McGee, welcome to Left Foot.
0: Thanks, Nicole. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on.
1: Let's jump right into our questions. Which of your personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful developing business?
0: Well, I think that's a good question, and it's one that uh, probably takes a little bit of uh, time and, and experience, meaning uh, <laughs> just the passage of time you learn it through trial and error. I'd say three things. And the first is you learn to check your ego at the door. And what people usually say when uh, they think about that is the client comes first. And that's right. The client really does come first. and what that requires of a lawyer is really for the lawyer to come second. And it sounds easy. And we all say we can do that, but it really isn't so easy for lawyers because when you think about it, we've spent our whole careers measuring our success based on what we did and, you know, based on our individual performance. So, you know, we're accustomed to thinking of ourselves and that is a habit that has to be broken. The second thing is you really have to listen And listening is something that takes practice. And it's not something that lawyers necessarily, again, are terribly uh, adept at, uh, I think, particularly when they first come out of school. So learning how to listen to the client, listening to the nuance, listening to what's meant in addition and behind what's said, I think that's very important. The third thing is, and I had uh, one of our partners tell me a story uh, recently about this where the assistant general counsel he works with when he was engaged said, remember, your job is to make me look good. That's a little bit of a variant of the first about checking the ego at the door. But what that really means in practice is you learn that it isn't just the delivery of the legal product. That's, of course, very, very important. But it's also all of the little things. We've all heard the expression, all politics is local. Well, really, the corollary for us is, all service is personal. So when you know that your client's got to make a report to their board and they've got to get their report in on the 19th of the month, you, know, you make a special effort to make sure that your part of that is in there three or four days in advance so that they're not worrying about it as they're putting together what they have to do. You do what you have to do so that your client looks good. If you do those three things, I think good things will follow.
1: That whole idea of checking your ego at the door and putting the client first, you're right. It sounds like something that people should be doing, lawyers should be doing in practice, but it really takes a conscious effort. Do the best thing for the client. It ties into your second point, which is listening. You know, What is the outcome the client's looking for? We had a guest recently say that not every matter needs to be handled with the highest quality Sometimes okay quality is okay. That idea of listening to what the outcomes need to be and make your partner look good. Don't want to have a huge bill on a regular routine matter, which is a great lead into the next question because Mike, at this point, you're running a business. You're running a law firm. You're the CEO of that firm. It all has to make sense. The number of lawyers you have on board, the number of other staff, the investment in technology, how is the firm going to grow next year? Assuming that you're going to retain the clients you have and then look for growth. Do you have a strategy? Have you employed a strategy in your career when it's the beginning of a new year and you're thinking about what the expectations are for that year? And if you have employed a growth strategy, what does that look like?
0: We do have uh, annually our managers get together and lay out what the goals are for the year. And I'd say that has a couple of components. One is what you're talking about in terms of what's the specific plan and what are the specific targets for the year. What do the major clients look like they're doing? What are the industries that we're in? We're in several different kinds of industries. The strategies that apply in one industry might not at all apply in the other. So you want to make sure that the plan is tailored to the particular demands of that industry. And of course, that's also going to be influenced by current events. One of the areas of practice that our firm is well known for, and the practice that I came out of, public finance. What's going to happen in 2018 in public finance is going to be driven, not in substantial part, by what the tax bill looks like. So we have to be looking at, and that's true, of course, of everything. I just use that as an example. You've got to make sure that you tie in current events to your planning on a real-time and continuing basis, you're really updating your plan all the time, or you'll find that it'll fall out of favor or fall out of effectiveness pretty fast. But above that is in a little bit more of an intangible way, I think, is an essential part of the plan is the attitude of the lawyers. The firm has to understand that the type of competition that we are in on a day-to-day basis. And although I think most lawyers are there still can be a little bit lack of the universality of these changes. Uh, one of your guests in an earlier podcast talked about how being smart is overrated. I wouldn't say necessarily overrated, but I would say it's table stakes. I mean anybody who's at an AmLaw 200 firm, you know, is a smart lawyer. So there's plenty of smart lawyers around. You have to understand what the competition is doing and how aggressive is that competition is to inform your own efforts in implementing your plan. Because it's both the plan and the energy that's applied in implementing the plan. They're equally important. You don't have a plan, you're not going to hit your goal. But if you don't have the energy and the enthusiasm, even if you've got a great written plan, you're not going to get your goal. So you really have to have both. And We look at that really constantly, but especially at the beginning of the year.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that response. And and you know, it's interesting because that is absolutely, you know, the way that as a business development professional, I've always looked at plans obviously specific to growth, not on running the business, but you know, what is our plan? Are we reevaluating that plan as time goes on because things do happen in your case public policy and of course in your firm things happen with your clients. Your clients may have some thing that impacts their direction or what's on board for them next. That said, you know, evaluating the plan. And then to that last point, how are the lawyers feeling about it? Are they executing? So let's talk about that execution. You know, we we think of that as the tactical side of this, right? So I think we all started a new year, a new period with strong intentions. Do 10 calls a week, go to a particular conference to engage and get a speaking engagement to highlight one's expertise in a particular area. Those are those tactical things. And then of course Work can often get in the way. Are there tactical best practices that, as a firm, are there things that your firm is doing that allows for consistent,
0: predictable growth? I would say there are certain principles of approaching and trying to generate business, which are, uh, if not immutable, they're certainly of long standing character, which I'll talk about in one second. And then there are the tactics or the techniques that are used in pursuit of the principles. And those are, I think, much more influenced by current events and technology. So what I mean is the immutable principles, if you will, in my mind are you still have to visit with, go see your clients. That's as true in 2018 as it was in 1958. You have to develop that relationship with people. That means physically being present to the extent that you can. Secondly, we've already talked about the listening. I think that's just a a universal thing. And then the third immutable principle that I, it's funny it's simple but I think lawyers sometimes aren't so good at it. You actually have to ask for work. I mean it's great to be in a position of uh, have a great reputation and it's great to be at a conference and give a speech, but at the end of the day to be a successful business generator, you have to ask and you have to recognize that even for your good clients other people are asking too. So you might as well get used to it. That's the world in which we live. The technology, I think, allows us different ways to get at that communication. You know, we, of course, everybody uses social media. We all have Twitter accounts. We all use LinkedIn. We all use, you know, whatever's going Probably by the end of this podcast, there's going to be more technology. And what I just said will already be obsolete. It's changing fast, right? So you have to try to be aware of what technological tools are available to you and make sure that you're using them to the best you can. So it's, it's both things. You mentioned conferences, for example. Conferences are a great tool. Some people think that just going to the conference, that that's enough. Well, that actually you know isn't enough. It's both the follow-up, it's persistence, it's appearing before the same group of people over a longer period of time so that you develop authenticity that helps to lend itself to growing trust. And then you have to be yourself. I have a partner who was uh, moderating a trade conference in his particular area last year, and he'd set up a particular speaker to fill in about a 75-minute presentation, and the speaker was done after 30 minutes. So my partner was standing up in front of this conference and basically having to fill in the time for 45 minutes, which he was able to do, but it wasn't easy. He felt a little bad about it, but what I told him was every single person in that audience knew what you were going through, that you were having to do your best to wing it. And they admired you for your pluck that you were able to carry it out. He probably made more friends and developed a better reputation for hard work and creativity under pressure than almost anything else he could have done. So, you know, that sort of those sort of things, a little bit of serendipity there. But you have to be yourself and you have to be committed to what it is you're doing.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely agree. Conferences and follow up. Huge believer. You go to the conference, terrific. And I agree with you. Go to the same conference a few years in a row because the return is significant over time. You will see other people doing that. People will say, oh, I recognize you or we've met before you were here last year. It's a great way. It makes it much easier to enhance those connections and of course, follow up. And now, a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning in to the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas business development grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche. How to Focus and Develop an Expert Reputation, Commercial Savoir Faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At LeftFoot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. The market has definitely changed. Today, there's technology, there's pressure around pricing. How has the approach that your firm is taking in your go-to-market strategy, how has it changed due to these changing market conditions?
0: The biggest change, Nicole, has been the application of technology to try to make our process, our deliverable, or to have our deliverable be delivered on a more efficient basis. And clients' are demanding that. The influence now of uh, big data and the ability for clients to do things like take the uh, enormous amount of data that's present in bills and do their own reverse engineering of what it is we are doing so that they can ask us, how is this aspect of the transaction or this aspect of the case or this aspect of discovery? How was that handled? What was your rationale? How is it being staffed? What are the inputs? What are the cost drivers? Those are the types of, I think, much more sophisticated financial types of questions that are being asked of us now, which really were not so much asked even 10 years ago. And I think that's a direct result of technology and the growing influence of things like artificial intelligence. When my partners think of artificial intelligence, for example, I think right now they tend to think of a robot that's going to deliver a memo if they ask it a question. And that's really not it. I mean, what really, I think the first impact is going to be on legal process because AI allows the client and is going to require the law firms to really drill down much more than we ever have on how we produce product. And it'll be up to us to make sure that we are delivering that product add value as best we can. And at the, both the price point and the quality point, go back to your original, one of your original comments that, you know, not all work has to be double A gold standard in terms of covering every particular issue. You obviously have to deliver top quality work at all times, but top quality means something different in different contexts. And that can have an impact on price. So all of those things. Great
1: point. And when I think about artificial intelligence and to your point, I hear a lot of lawyers perceiving that. I mean, it really is, in my opinion, big data on steroids. It's big data that is being pushed through technology to get results that a human could never do because it's too much data. We couldn't manage it. It's The practical application of the result of that is what you refer to as the opportunity. If you can go back to your clients, whether they ask for it or you're doing it proactively and say, based on other matters we've done for you or other matters we've done for other clients of similar complexity with similar criteria, this is what we expect the result to be. How would you like to proceed? What a differentiator,
0: at least for now. And I think culturally, it also requires, I think in our business generally, this is one of the biggest cultural issues that we, as lawyers, have to get over. When you think that for uh, roughly 200 years in our country, lawyers have been accustomed to delivering a bill based on, in essence, the amount of time worked. That was a very efficient method for having the client, in essence, take all of the risk for what it was going to uh, how much time would be taken how much effort to come up with the deliverable the emphasis on more fixed fees and the use of big data precisely as you've described to me says that that risk equation has been flipped 180 degrees and i consider that a permanent change Lawyers as practitioners are going to have to get used to a world, if we're not already used to it. We're going to have to get used to a world in which we bear the risk, not the client, as to the cost drivers of that deliverable. And being able to analyze, therefore, what you do, what's driving your cost, and how you might be able to make that process more efficient... That's in our interest as vendors, frankly, and I think the clients are pushing us to it, and we're kind of kicking and screaming, but we're getting there, and we will get there, and the folks that get there fastest and with the most acceptance will probably be among the leaders in our industry.
1: Terrific point that today... It is in-house legal departments pushing firms and partners, legal service partners, pushing them to look at the data or provide the data, to your point, because you're going to assume the risk as the provider going forward with these AFAs and these fixed fee agreements, the data is going to end up being your friend. The data will say that you're going to need a certain remuneration or that you're going to have to engage certain outside resources. The risk has shifted and the technology and the access to data ultimately will end up being a positive for the firm as you'll be able to use that in developing your argument for a particular remuneration.
0: Not everyone probably agrees with that quite yet, but I think that's the case. It might be the
1: future. If you're practicing and you are practicing using a fixed fee type of arrangement, the assumption is that you're gonna go back to the client if something has changed and you're gonna have a business discussion. Do you wanna comment about a are you doing that? My assumption is you are. And then B, you know, any kind of tactics or advice you would give to lawyers about those business discussions where it can make them more comfortable?
0: That's a really, really good question. I think we are doing it. It will vary a lot on conditions. No surprise when the lawyer says it depends. But I think the relevant takeaway is you have to have a really specific and sort of broad-based conversation with your client in advance about the kinds of conditions which can result in that conversation. In other words, what I'm saying is, I don't think it's enough to say, well, here's our price for the project. And if if things don't work out as we all assume, we reserve the right to come and talk to you about it. We do say that to people, but candidly, I don't think that puts you in the strongest position to negotiate later on. I think it's much more important to say, we've analyzed the drivers of cost on this particular project to be the following five things. We've got a pretty good feel for what will happen on these three elements of the case or the matter, whatever it is. And we're pretty confident that our price contribution of those elements, that's pretty good. But on these two, there are elements that we don't control, that you don't control perhaps, or perhaps the client does control sometimes. That's even a little bit more touchy conversation. But in any case, there are a couple of cost drivers here where it's very hard to forecast. So our degree of confidence in the price that we're quoting is not as great. So don't be surprised that uh, we may have to come back to you if we see that the cost drivers, that the assumptions that are going into the price are changing, which could result in us having to come back and ask you, in essence, for an adjustment to the fee. If you can do that, if you can look around the corner a little bit and give them some comfort that it's not just random that you've come back and said, we need an adjustment or that you're not coming back because of something that you really should have forecast. In other words, no, 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 that is your risk, law firm. We're not taking that risk. But if you can tell them in advance that there are the areas where here's where the risk is, and in fairness, it's not the law firm's risk. So let's talk about that. You're much more likely to get a buy-in later on.
1: That point of really highlighting those areas where there might be risk and knowing, of course, based on your experience and having looked at matters or cases that were similar, you can do that. You can say these are the areas that might, based on the information we have right now, might involve some further risks that we'll have to discuss down the road. Terrific point.
0: I mentioned earlier, we have a very robust public finance practice. And if there are any public finance practitioners, I'm sure there are listening to your podcast, they will immediately recognize that the idea of fixed fees in that world has been the practice for, you know, about 80 years. So everybody's pretty comfortable with it. In that particular market. And in part, it's worked well because the types of risks that are presented to the law firm as the vendor are pretty well known. There aren't, I mean, there are surprises, but everybody knows them pretty well. So, in that context, where there is, in essence, a multi generational history those lawyers are pretty comfortable uh, having that conversation. On the other hand, where I think everybody agrees that the notion of legal process and and sticking to budget and fixed fees in the litigation area, a little bit harder to get buy-in, let's face it. And so I think some of the folks in that market, I think are a little bit, they're having a little bit more difficulty embracing the idea. And as a result, they're probably, it's a little bit more awkward conversation for them Um, They are getting there, absolutely. And we do a fair amount ourselves. We do a fair amount of portions of litigation work on a fixed fee, and we have good conversations with the client, and our people are used to it. Other areas, not so much. So it's an ongoing process.
1: It's definitely the area we hear. It does involve the most challenge, but I think the idea of taking the example of areas where there have been fixed fees and budgets and constraints of budgets, using the skills developed on that side of the house can be so helpful.
0: The lawyers are quick to say, this is... Is not predictable. And so therefore, nothing in the case or nothing in the matter is predictable. That's not true of almost everything. There are vast portions, whether it's litigation or not, of things, if you break it down into bits, that actually are pretty predictable. You got to work with those. And there are going to be portions that aren't. And that's where you have the conversation with the client.
1: That's a very interesting point, because I would imagine when you're thinking about a case or a matter and how it's going to play out, To your point, when you break it down into pieces, you know what's predictable. That's a whole stream of work right there. Breaking down what's going to happen, spelling it out. My assumption is, Mike, that you use a project management solution that is helpful in those scenarios.
0: We're sort of tinkering with some of our own. We have tried to stay abreast of uh, the sophisticated end of applications and software that help us uh, analyze our own business some of it we've tinkered with. We haven't really found a magic bullet out there. And we try to stay attuned to that. But we are, to a greater and greater extent, you know, relying on analytics to break things down into pieces and then really drill down to what it's costing us to produce something.
1: When you look broadly at the industry, what are you seeing out there that you would consider innovative in the legal industry today?
0: First of all, innovation is happening so fast. A few years, probably even three or four years ago, we did not have anything like a clock. And now that's an organization that has about 3,000 members. That's a reflection of the rate at which the market is changing. In my mind right now, it's uh, the application of artificial intelligence to law firm operations. I think we're pretty much at the beginning of that. There are some firms that are already moving ahead in, in that area, and... I think that's going to have a pretty dramatic impact on how firms are structured and how services are delivered.
1: Having reviewed your firm in preparation for our discussion today and looking at the brand that's out there, it clearly shows that there is a mix of professionals working at your firm that are not just lawyers. There are, of course, many lawyers there, many lawyers that are looking to have a long and healthy career. What advice do you give to those lawyers that are just starting their responsibilities in business development?
0: That's a great question and and one that uh, we try to coach our younger attorneys about. First, I'd go back to the beginning of our conversation about the fundamentals of remembering it's the client first, check that ego. You've got to learn to listen. You've got to put yourself in the shoes of the client. You've got to really do what is required to resolve the problems for the client, make their day a little bit easier. The idea that you have to start. I think there is a tendency for younger lawyers sometimes to think, well, you know, business development, I'm not going to bring in a million dollar client this year. So why should I even try? And that's going to be, you know, 10 or 15 years from now if I'm lucky. We tell people, no, not at all. You have to start now. And yes, I mean, we'll be happy if you bring in a million dollar client, but you won't. But what you do do now is you begin to develop that network within your age cohort. And a surprising thing happens in 10 years. You are 10 years older, and so is everybody else in your age cohort. And some of those people who are not lawyers are running companies and are now your clients and actually can bring you the work. But if you don't start today developing that relationship for 10 years from now, they're going to pick up the phone and call somebody else because they're not going to know you. So we really emphasize for younger lawyers... It's basically the fundamentals, the blocking and the tackling. Put yourself in their shoes and you've got to get out there. Don't be afraid. I actually think fear is a bit of a an obstacle sometimes. You know, lawyers are very ego-driven sometimes, but in a, in a funny way, a lot of them can also be shy. So you've got to get out there, find your authentic voice, do what's comfortable for you but do something and in our case we'll help you we'll coach you we'll provide support but you got to get out there and talk to that client or that prospective client.
1: Great point and that idea of starting now and keeping up with those connections. And I think that's a great point about the fear. One of the things that we talk about is business development is not a personality trait. It is a skill set. Things like fear and not being comfortable, not liking the whole idea of it. One of the things we talk about tell other people you're uncomfortable with it and practice and do things that are comfortable for you. Maybe it's not calling a lawyer at another firm, but you're likely very comfortable on the sidelines of your kid's practice field saying, what do you do? You can start there and get good at those kinds of discussions and then bring them back to work.
0: Precisely. And in particular, here's something you said earlier, Nicole, about in the business development area, the best really is the enemy of the good lawyers are used to being perfectionists in their work product, and they must be for lots of professional reasons. In business development, just get in the game. It doesn't have to be you know, the absolute best proposal, the best presentation every single time, but you've got to be in the game. And I think there's some resistance if a lawyer feels like, well, I, I'm not going to be perfect at it. You don't have to be, but you do have to be in the game.
1: Most of the time, the answer is going to be no. The majority are. Getting used to that and flexing that muscle and experiencing that, you can get a little bit more comfortable. And then it's really exciting when it does work. Mike, you have a lot of energy. It's very clear. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do?
0: I do enjoy in my role as CEO, watching and hopefully trying to assist in the success of our other lawyers, and especially of our younger lawyers. I mean, I'll joke with my partners that I'm no longer a revenue, I'm just a cost so I'd better do something to justify that. But I do enjoy what we do. We have a great institution. You know, we've been around since before the Civil War, 165 years. So it's got a great tradition to it. And and we try to extend that by really training our young lawyers in these fundamentals and to give them the support. And when you see somebody succeed and go out and get a little bit beyond their comfort zone and have good things happen... That's really fun. That is really fun to see that. And I I take a lot of pleasure when we were able to do that. Quite
1: fulfilling. Mike, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye?
0: Nicole, thank you very much for the opportunity to be on the podcast and particularly to the younger lawyers who may be listening. You know, go on out there. There is plenty of opportunity in our business. Keep at those fundamentals and good things will happen.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Great last point. Mike, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot.
0: Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com.
1: It takes focus and
0: thought to lead with the
1: left foot. Until next time.